Well, praise the Lord, everyone. Find your seats. We're a little rowdy this morning. That's good. Uh, we have a guest speaker today, and uh, the guest is no guest to New Life because uh, Tim Shepard, who I'll introduce in a second, uh, is the pastor of all things student ministries at New Life Church. So we're a congregation, New Life Manitou, New Life East, downtown. There's a Chinese speaking. There's a Spanish speaking. We have congregations around Colorado Springs and the Pikes Peak region. And Tim oversees our whole Desperation Conference and student ministries. Many of you know that we have a student ministry here uh, for New Life Manitou Middle School and High School. They'll relaunch in the fall. And it's before service, Dan Glass, who is our team's director over tech, is also our director of student ministry. So shout out to Dan. But uh, today we have Tim Shepard, who oversees our student ministries. And so he has our last message in our sermon series of the book of Proverbs. And then next week, we'll start something else. So I'll I'll hint at that uh, maybe next week when we're starting it. But would you please give a warm new life manner to welcome to Tim Shepard. Thank you. (laughs) So kind. So kind. Well, hey, uh, I do love that you guys are rowdy this morning. I do spend my life uh, speaking to pubescent, prepubescent, adolescent kids. So a rowdy room is actually pretty normal to me. So I want you to talk back to me. Is that okay? All right, all right, all right. If you have your Bible, we're going to go to the book of Proverbs. You can open up to Proverbs chapter 9. As Pastor Joe said, um, I do oversee the student ministries at New Life Church. I'm joined today by my wife of, we just passed our six-year anniversary, Mariah Grace Shepherd, right over here. Um, I have the privilege of of, uh, having the unique story of I was almost like born and raised at New Life Church. My family started going there in 2001. I was seven years old. Um, so I've got to see New Life and all of its highs and all of its lows and all of its in-betweens uh, over the last two decades. And I love this church. I, I loved being there when this congregation was just getting going uh, and seeing Dr. Joe and, and the team just getting ready to come out here and bring the gospel to Manitou Springs. It is a really beautiful thing. That being said, we are going to close out our series today in Proverbs. And today I want to talk about how do I fear the Lord? How do I fear the Lord? I think um, Dr. Joe, he referred to this in the first message of this series at the very beginning of the summer. Um, And I think it's only right for us to kind of end um, with talking about this because this is where wisdom comes from. We've, we've kind of had this working definition for wisdom, this idea of um, living skillfully in all of life's circumstances. And this is kind of what Proverbs is about. It talks about our relationships. It talks about how to handle money. It talks about how to enjoy life well. It talks about um, marriage. It talks about uh, all of these different things. And so we, we kind of have this book to go, okay, there, there is a way to live well in God's world, but it starts with something. So that being said, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read this one verse And as we pray, Proverbs 9, verse 10, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Jesus, we know that we can do nothing apart from you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now. You would... 
uh, go ahead and replace our thoughts with your thoughts. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. You would give us minds to understand. You would give us eyes to see. And you'd give us hearts to believe. Lord, I pray that you would come and you would speak. It is your words that give life. So we want to attune our ears and our attention to you. So Lord, would you come, would you speak, would you show us today what it means to fear you in your precious and holy name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been in a situation before where you are playing a game and everybody is playing by their own rules? Everybody's playing by their own rules. Uh, I, had, uh, I, had, I was giving a message about three months ago to student ministries up at North, and we had junior high and high school, sixth through 12th grade, 300 students in the room. And I was like, All right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna play a game of freeze tag. But in this game of freeze tag, this is how this is going to start. Everybody is going to play by a separate rule than somebody that's not in their grade. So I started with like the freshman and I said, freshman, you will play this game hopping on your right foot the entire time. If you set down your left foot, you are out. Juniors, if you are playing in here right now, you are gonna be hopping on your left foot. You do not get to use both of your feet either. Seniors, you're the top dogs, you get to do what you want. If somebody tags you, you're not out, you're a senior. Freshman, you have to be blindfolded. You have to be blindfolded the whole time. And then as I worked down to the junior high grades, it got down to like sixth graders, you gotta crab walk the whole time and be blindfolded. We hadn't even started the game and chaos erupted in the room. If you, if you want to know that there is a sense of justice in the human heart, tell a sixth grader they cannot do what an eighth grader is doing. And you will see like chaos begins to ensue. You can't play a game that way. Can you imagine if, if high school sports were organized this way, where you walked out onto the soccer field and you said, okay, we are playing soccer. There is no physical contact except for this team. You can push the team on the ground and you can trip at will. Right? And if we were to watch like sports break down this way, the only logical conclusion is chaos. Nothing will be accomplished. When we look at God's world today, what Proverbs shows us is in fact, there is a way to live well in God's world. And what, what this is kind of revealing to us is actually there, we, we do live in a moral universe. So that is to say that God's world is not a world where he is saying, hey, Live your own truth. Just kind of determine what you feel is best for your life and go ahead and live that way. And if you're paying attention to the world that we live in today, this is actually becoming a pretty predominant philosophy for the way that people are engaging with life. Hey, as long as it's not hurting anybody, you do you, I'll do me. Live your own truth. And that's all well and good until my truth begins to step on the toes of your truth. And when we begin to live this way, what we inevitably see the same way if we were to play a game where nobody has to work or operate within the same set of rules, the only destination is chaos. And yet when we read the book of Proverbs, we have a book of wisdom that's saying actually here is a way to live well in God's world, not our world, 
in God's world. In fact, for the believer, he's saying, if you are going to flourish, you're going to have to set aside the way that you think living life is best, and you're gonna have to embrace a way of life to which our Heavenly Father says life is best. And so we have to ask this question, what does living well look like? Where does it start? Well, according to Proverbs 9, wisdom or the art of living skillfully in God's world begins with what? The fear of the Lord. We see this all throughout Proverbs. If we go to Proverbs 14, 27, it says this, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. If we fast forward to Proverbs 19, 23, the author says, the fear of the Lord leads to life that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. And if the Proverbs aren't enough, you can hop over to the psalmist in Psalm 33, 8, and he says this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And if the, the Psalter's not enough, you can go even further back into the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 10, 12, where he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And if that's not enough, you can go to the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in what? The fear of the Lord. There's something about the fear of the Lord that I think scripture is wanting us to grasp here. Now here's the thing, when we say fear of the Lord, when you say fear, generally a lot of images begin to come to mind. And, and Dr. Joe did a great job addressing this in week one. The fear of the Lord isn't this idea of terror that we're supposed to live in this idea of, of terror and being afraid that God is going to smite us when we do something wrong. That's not what scripture's talking about. When we, when we look back at the fear of the Lord in the Hebrew mind, what they're saying is to look at something with a healthy sense of reverence, respect, or as the psalmist says there, awe of something. To actually see God rightly, truthfully, in actual reality. This is what the fear of the Lord looks like for us to actually see him for who he is. And this has to start with something. Proverbs 15:33 it says the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom and before honor comes what? Humility. So before we're going to see God for who he is, we're going to have to humble ourselves to see him correctly. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt humbled? <laughs> Uh, five months ago, I grew up as an athlete. I played every kind of sport. I played basketball when I was a kid. I played roller hockey as a kid. I played soccer as a kid. I played tennis as a kid. Anything that my parents would let me play, I would play. And uh, I, I kind of grew up with this mentality that like my body is invincible. Like I, I know no pain. I know no pain. I could eat whatever I wanted. I didn't have to gain a pound. Didn't have to gain a pound. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd go out. I'd play basketball. I'd play soccer. I'd go hang out with friends. We would, we would play into the late evening games all day. I would never stretch once. I never strained a muscle. It was awesome. 
if only our bodies could be like this for forever. Five months ago, I had a humbling reality check. I was going to play basketball with some friends, and I'm not a huge basketball fan. I know I'm at my, 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 my buddies right here. They both play basketball in the eighth grade. I go to Lifetime to play basketball. I did not warm up, because I've never warmed up. Warming up is for losers, okay? And I walk out onto the basketball court. We play the first game. My team's doing great. We win. We, we're into game two, 45 minutes into playing. And I wish I had a better story. I wish this story was like, I was like Michael Jordan taking a dunk from the free throw line, something along those lines. That was not the case. I was standing at the half court line, running to get open. I plant to the left and I turn and it's like I hear a gunshot. And I'm like, somebody just hit me with like a free weight in my foot. I had this look of shock on my face. I looked at one of my, my wife's friends. She was standing under the basket. She looked at me, I just like went pale fell to the ground, and I turn around to see who hit me in my ankle, and nobody's standing there. And I'm having to like process in real time what's going, what's going on. It took me about five to 10 seconds to realize that noise just came from inside my body. <laughs> Nobody did that to me. And so I can't, I, I try to stand up, and I'm like, I'm convinced I just broke my ankle. I had to have broken my ankle. I have my friends pick me up. They pull me off the basketball court. They bring one of the instructors over and he goes, hey, what'd you do? And I was like, I, I think I just broke my ankle. And he goes, was well, it your ankle or is it your Achilles? I was like, well, that's a weird question. So I start feeling my ankle, nothing hurts. And I touch my calf and I get this shock of pain. I go, well, maybe it's my calf. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. My brother-in-law, he's a PA. My wife puts me in the car. We go to his house. He leans me over. And when your Achilles is attached, they'll lean you over, they'll bend your leg up, they'll squeeze your calf and your foot will flex. He bent me over, turned over, he squeezed my calf and my foot stayed limp. I had completely severed my Achilles tendon right here. Just snapped and rolled up into my calf. Warm up is not for losers. <laughs> it is for winners. Those who know how to live skillfully in God's world, okay? Two days later, I was unconscious on a table getting the very first surgery that I've ever had in my life. And I was like a six-year-old girl getting ready for this surgery. I'm sitting, they put me in the gown. I'm drenched in sweat. I'm like, y'all gotta get some cold rags in here. I'm, I'm overheating. I'm like trying to get up. I'm starting to, they're putting, the, they're putting the anesthesia in me, just trying to tap me on the shoulder. I just kind of pass out. And the doctor said, this is going to be a, about a nine month to full year total recovery. You're gonna have to take your time. It doesn't look like it right now. I'm in constant pain, constant pain. Why? Because I thought warm up was for losers. And the Lord taught me something so new on March 6, 2021, that humility is a real thing. <laughs> that in fact, this is not my world. I have parameters, I have boundaries, I have limits. Something that we all have. And before I'm gonna have a right view of God, it's going to first take having a right view of myself to realize he is God, I am not. The fear of the Lord begins with humility, with humility. Now here's the thing, 
If we're going to see God rightly, I think it's a fair question for us to ask. If scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament over and over and over again is going to say, fear the Lord, I think it's a fair question for us to ask, who is this Lord that we are fearing? And what I love is that God allows us to ask that question. Who is this Lord that we are fearing? Who, who is this God that scripture is talking about that's saying, okay, wait a minute, I need to set the way I want to do life around. I, want, I need to set living my own truth to the side and in fact, embrace living his truth. Who is this God? So there is three points. I'm doing this Dr. Joe style this morning. <laughs> three points that I wanna give you. Three very simple, but yet very profound attributes about this God that are essential if we are going to see him rightly. So who is this God? Number one, this God is infinite. This God is infinite. And this is what I mean by that. If we go to Genesis 1 and 2, we're not given a picture of a God who's kind of showing up into this world and going, oh, look at all these pretty things. Let me put them all together. No, we have a God who is taking nothing and turning it into something. We have a God who creates, who speaks the world into being, into motion. And he doesn't just create, he, he calls these things good. And so we see a God who, who uniquely and particularly creates the sky and the land and the water and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the insects and oxygen and the sun and the moon and the stars and the way that we live. And then he, he brings it to his masterpiece on day six when he creates something in his own own image, man and woman, humanity. And we're given this picture of a God who is utterly independent. In other words, he doesn't depend on anything. He is sufficient in and of himself. That is not you or my case. We require warm-up when we are 27 years old getting ready to play basketball. We require it. Otherwise, we rupture it because he does not. He's utterly independent. We get a picture of a God who's constant. In other words, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. A God who stands over all things. And if he is utterly independent, that means that everything else in creation is utterly dependent upon him. We don't breathe apart from him. We didn't wake up today with his mercies new this morning apart from him. We were not fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb, apart from him. He is infinite. He is a God who is all-powerful, all-present, who stands over all things. Now, this can do one or two things. This can begin to really discourage us, and we begin to doubt, can a God who is over all things really have our best interest in mind? Or it can give us a sense of awe and wonder that as finite beings, we get to infinitely look at his infinite reality for all of eternity. Let me give you an example of this. I, at New Life, we have this thing called um, the pastor on call phone. <laughs> so, oh, it's right here. Pastor Brett has it right now. So what this is, is we have all the pastors at New Life. We have a 52-week a rotation in the year. 
And so what they'll say is they'll bring all the pastors together and say, okay, you got to sign up for a week or two weeks to take this phone. And it's essentially like, it's, it's like our idea of having a doctor on call or like a pastor on call. If something comes in, somebody needs something, they'll contact the phone and the pastor who has that phone will be there. I had the pastor on call phone about two years ago and I got this call from a, a young adult. He was probably late 20s. And he said, hey, I'm having really hard wrestles with my faith. I've been doing this thing for long enough. Like, I can't do this anymore, but I want to talk to a pastor before I bow out. I said, okay, come in on a Sunday morning um, and during service, we'll just go to my office and we'll chat. And he said, okay. So he comes and he, he walks and he sits down and he leaves with this. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm really smart. <laughs> I was like, that's great, man. <laughs> that's great. He goes, no, like, don't, don't, don't try to convince me otherwise. Like, I'm witty. I've been around this for a while. Any question or, or something that you would try to prod, like, he's like, I already have the counter answer, so let's just not even go there. I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, I just, I can't, I can't believe in this God. I can't trust my life to a God that I can't fully understand. I said, that's interesting. Why? He goes, because I can't fully understand it. How am I supposed to trust him if I can't fully understand him? I said, that's a fair, logical, smart man question. I said, let me ask you a question. If you had to have brain surgery, would you only go to a brain surgeon that you fully understand? Or would it be okay to trust that a brain surgeon knows more than you do to save your life? He stopped. He said, that's a fair question. I said, you're a smart guy. If you were to have a problem with your car, would you only take it to a mechanic that you could fully understand? Or would you only take it to a mechanic who understands a car as much as you do? Well, there'd be no point for a mechanic at that point. We have such a problem trusting in something that we don't fully understand. And I think that's fair. I think it's natural. Because we've been conditioned to believe that those that we would put our trust in, we can't be convinced that they would always have our best interest in mind, right? We have a problem with that. So we have two choices. We either are gonna walk away from the fact that following Jesus is the way to life because God is infinite and we are not willing to put our trust in a God that we cannot fully understand or we can in faith be in awe and in wonder that we are going to be discovering the mysteries of this God for all of eternity. But that won't matter unless we get to point number two, that this God is personal. He's not just infinite, he's personal. And this is big because if you go back to Greek and Roman mythology, you have gods who are personal, but they are not infinite. So you have lots of ideas of a God that we have a God over thunder, we have a God over marriage, we have a God over the crop, we have a God over the harvest, we have a God over, over war, we have a God over beauty, we have a God over wisdom. They are very personal gods. They like to interact with their creation, but they are not infinite. They are not all powerful. Or you have an ideology that's more of like a deist mindset that actually we have an all powerful God that kind of wound up the, the, the earth like a clock and then just walked away. He's not personal. He doesn't care what happens to creation. And if we go to God's word, that's not the picture of the God that we get in the Bible. We go to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis 16. It was all good. God is infinite. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and then Genesis 3 just had to happen. 
where everything goes to chaos, everything goes to brokenness. And we're going, what is going on? And at this point, the God of the Bible has every right to just turn his back on creation and walk away. But that would be a really lame Bible. It continues to give us a a picture of a God who says, I'm not gonna walk away. I'm going to make things better. And in fact, I'm gonna make all things new. I'm not turning my back, I'm leaning in. One of the most beautiful pictures that we have of this is in Genesis 16, the story of Hagar, right? Where we have Abraham and Sarah, And God's made a promise to give them a child. And through this child is going to come a nation and their descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And they're like, okay, Lord, bring it. And he's like, oh, you're gonna have to wait on me. They're like, we're old. He goes, I know. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And in an effort to take the promise into their own hands and not wait on God giving it, Sarah goes, look, why don't you just take my slave, Hagar, and and let's try to lay hold of this promise through her. And Abraham, just being a wise husband, goes, okay. (laughs) Takes the servant, Hagar. She gets pregnant with a child. Sarah begins to look at her with contempt, begins to treat her abusively, so she flees. She runs. She finds herself at this little oasis in the wilderness. And what does God do? He doesn't abandon her. He doesn't overlook her. There's no reason why an Egyptian slave girl would have a part in the story of our faith. And yet in Genesis 16, we get a picture of a God who pursues this slave. He says, what are you doing? Where are you going? She goes, I'm fleeing. He goes, no, 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 listen to me you're gonna be part of this blessing. You're gonna be part of this promise. Your child too, I will make into a great nation and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. I am here, go back. And it's in this moment, Genesis 16, we're actually given one of the first names ever given to God by a human. Genesis 16, 13. Hagar says, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. El Roi is the name given to God here, the God who sees me. We're given a God who is not just infinite, but hear me, he is intimately concerned about your life and being a part of your life. So it's not just, I'm gonna be over all things, deal with it. I'm gonna be over all things, I'm here. I'm here, look at me. Look at me. But a God who is infinite and a God who is personal mean nothing unless this God is good. Point number three, God is good. He's good. There's a lot of different definitions that we give to goodness. So this is the one that I wanna work from today. Good means this, that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. And I wanna be clear here. We can ask whose approval, not yours or mine, his own approval. All that God is and all that God does is worthy of his own approval. Theologian and scholar Wayne Grudem, he said this, there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of what is consistent with that character. 
Nonetheless, God has given us some reflection of his own sense of goodness so that we can evaluate things in the way God created us to evaluate them. We will also approve what God approves and delight in the things in which he delights. This is a great quote from Wayne Grudem, very theological. There's a more simple one that Frozone's wife gives us in The Incredibles just about 15 years ago. She said, he says, we are talking about the greater good. And what does she say? Greater good. I am your wife. Thank you, Lily. I am your wife. I am the greatest the only one, I love that. You see, we know Incredibles better than we know the Bible sometimes. <laughs> the only one in the universe who can tell that statement to us, I am the greatest good you are ever gonna get, is God himself. God himself. All that he does, all that he is, is worthy of his own approval. So what does God do? What does God do that allows us to know that he is good? And I love this because this is where the gospel becomes good news. How do we know God is infinite? How do we know God is personal? How do we know God is good? The ultimate reality of all of those things comes in a person named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is infinite. Let's look at John 1, 1 through 5. The apostle, he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So what we're getting here is the apostle John is saying, look, this man, Jesus, the one that we talk about, he wasn't just simply a prophet. He wasn't just simply a good teacher. You want to know what God looks like. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through him. Jesus, the one standing over all things and the one through whom all things were created, stands up at the beginning of time. Beginning of time. And knowing, knowing how creation would go and his infinite sovereignty chose to come and die for us anyway. And this is how we know that he's personal. John 1, 14. It says that the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Every Christmas, we identify Jesus with this name, Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. Not a God who wound up the clock and walked away. Jesus is infinite. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't walked away. The very fact that heaven would come to earth in the person of Jesus gives us a picture that God's not leaving you to be alone, but it doesn't finish there. Jesus is good. First, or John 1, 9 through 12. It says the true light 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do we fear the Lord? How do we look at God correctly, see him with reverence and awe and accept him for who he actually is. The New Testament reveals that really there's only one way to do that. There's only one way to live well in God's world. Hear me, brothers and sisters. That's to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Can you bow your heads with me? Why don't you just take a moment? Just take a moment. As we come to the end of this summer, we've talked so much about just how to navigate all of these different areas of life. Friendships, enjoying life, money. This idea of wisdom What's it all for? What's it all for? And I want to invite you to ask this question honestly with yourself right now. What's your purpose in living wise? What's it for? I think the temptation of reading a book like Proverbs is we just get so fixated on, I just want to, I just want to handle money well. I just want to be successful. I want to be a good steward. I want to know how to, to handle money in a godly way. Or, or we're looking at friendships and relationships or, or our marriages. And we're going, I just want to know how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good father, how to be a good mother, how to be a good son, a good daughter, a good brother, a good sister. Fill in the blank. How do I? And so we go to this book and we're going, okay, this, this is what it means. Or, or, or we're wanting to learn how to use our, our words and have them bring life instead of death. How to, how to utilize them to bring a positive aspect on life instead of a negative aspect on life. And, and how to build up instead of tear down. And so, so we look how to, 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 to live life wisely with our words. And I want, I want you to ask yourself, Why? What is the purpose of all of that? Is Are all of those just, just means to the end in and of themselves that you would be good with money, that you would be good with relationships, that you'd be good with marriage, that you'd be good with your words? Or is it because you want to spend your life beholding this man named Jesus? Is it because you realize that the very grace of God has allowed you to become an incarnational presence to his life, to the world around you. I wanna to suggest to you this morning that the whole reason we have the book of Proverbs is for that. Not that we would just learn how to live wisely, but that our lives would behold Jesus as the son of God as the true light, as the light that the darkness could not overcome. That we would see him as the well that does not run dry.
that we would see Jesus as the bread of life, that we would see Jesus as living water. And because of that, our lives embody his wisdom to the world. And so as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, I wanna invite you to let Jesus be the bottom line, to let Jesus take the throne, to say, you know what, I'm not concerned with living my own truth. I'm far more concerned with submitting to his truth. I'm far less concerned about what I call good and far more concerned about what he calls good. And receive that he is all you will ever need. So Jesus, we come to you and we welcome you. We thank you that in the midst of our faithlessness, in the midst of our foolishness, in the midst of our lack of wisdom, you came running anyway. You were faithful anyway. And because you are good, you invite us into that with you. You invite us into that with you. So Jesus, I pray yet again, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us minds to understand? And would you give us hearts to believe? And if you can agree with that, can you say amen?